Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 15. Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 15. We're in a sermon series called Church Without Walls as we look at the early church and how they... They understood that the very mission of God could never be contained by church walls. And we've been watching this unfold. We've been in Acts for some time now, so let me give you a recap. Someone time me in less than two minutes. The book begins, Jesus talks to his disciples, he commissions them, he returns to heaven. The Holy Spirit of the living God descends and fills those who make up the early church. The gospel is preached in Jerusalem, people are converted, and then the persecution begins in earnest. The church is scattered throughout the known world, throughout the Roman Empire. A guy named Saul is converted on the road to Damascus, he changes his name to Paul. Ethnic walls are dismantled. Peter has dinner with Cornelius. Non-Jewish churches grow first in Antioch as segregation is dismantled. King Herod kills James, the brother of Jesus. The persecution continues, but then he quickly is struck down and dies. Paul and Barnabas are sent on the first missionary journey. The Gentile church continues to explode. Missionaries experience persecution around the world. The Jerusalem Council is convened to decide whether a Gentile has to first become a Jew before he can become a Christian, and they decide, no, absolutely not. The grace of Jesus is sufficient. And then Paul and his companions leave on their second missionary journey, and that's where we are today. You got it? Did I miss anything? Yes, I did. Those are the high points. Here's what we're going to do today. Um, I'm going to read our passage, and then rather than walk through verse by verse, I'm going to pull out four questions. Well, if we have time, four questions. If not, three or two or one. We'll see how it goes. Now, we are starting to see some patterns in the book of Acts. So rather than go verse by verse, because this story is going to sound a little bit familiar to you, I'm going to pull out four questions that, for me, bubble up from our church. When I look at this passage, when I study this passage, these are four questions that arise for me as a member of New Community Covenant Church in Chicago. So I want to ask four questions, and I'm hopeful that at least one or two or three or all four of these will be your questions as well as we examine what happens in this passage, okay? That's our plan this morning. Let's read Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 15. When they, this is Paul and his companions, had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. 
But the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. As soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Many of the Jews believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. When the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, they went there too, agitating the crowd and stirring them up. The brothers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. The men who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Holy Spirit of God, would you allow your scriptures to teach us today? Would you open up our minds? Would you open up our hearts? Would you remove anything that would keep us from encountering you? Our desire is to be more like you. Our desire is for our lives to be transformed by you. This is our prayer. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Amen. Here's our first question. What can we set side by side with the gospel? What can we set side by side with the gospel? In verses 2 and 3 we read, As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. What can we set side by side with the gospel? The language in these couple verses of Paul reasoning from the Old Testament scriptures and then talking about the suffering, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. The language here is Paul set side by side. He set on one hand the Old Testament scriptures. And then on the other side, he set the suffering and the resurrection of Jesus. He set these two things side by side. And then Luke tells us he showed them that Jesus was the Christ. On one hand, the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. On the other hand, the suffering and the death of Jesus. What what was Paul uh, looking at? When he looked at the Old Testament scriptures. Well, we don't know. We don't know. But it could have been, it could have been a couple of different things. Perhaps he, in that synagogue in Thessalonica, perhaps he turned to Isaiah, to that Old Testament prophet so loved, so well known. And perhaps he read to them from Isaiah 53. 
Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. And perhaps Paul said, Isaiah was talking about Jesus. Isaiah was looking forward to the very Son of God who would be on our behalf smitten. Our transgressions, our sins would be laid upon. That was Jesus, maybe Paul said. Or, or, maybe, Paul, or maybe Paul went to the Psalms. Maybe he went to the, to the Hebrew prayer book and went to one of the most well-known Psalms, Psalms 22, and he's He maybe just began at the beginning of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? And maybe Paul said, do you know that these were the words that the Christ uttered from the cross as he died? Quoting from our book of prayer. Or maybe, maybe he went all the way back to the beginning. Maybe Paul went all the way back to the book of Genesis, and he went back to that well-known story of Abraham, Father Abraham. And he told the story maybe of, of the time that Abraham was asked by God to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. Maybe he read to them of the angel of the Lord coming to Abraham right before he was to sacrifice his son and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. Maybe Paul said this is a metaphor for what God has done for us. Like Father Abraham did not withhold his only son, so our God has not withheld his son. We we don't know. Luke doesn't tell us what Old Testament scriptures Paul went to, but it's reminiscent of Jesus himself, who after his resurrection, do you remember the story on the road to Emmaus? Jesus shows up, with two of his disciples, and his disciples are kept from recognizing them, recognizing him. And they talk as they're walking, and Jesus kind of plays with them a little bit. So why are you so upset? And they tell him that their rabbi, their teacher, had just been crucified. And Jesus then, in verse 25 of the 24th chapter of Luke, says, How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Luke is showing that Paul follows in Jesus' example of setting side by side the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, with the suffering and the resurrection of Jesus. What's happening here? What's happening here? Paul Paul is demonstrating a deep understanding of the gospel of Jesus in his own life. 
And simultaneously, Paul is showing that he can empathize with and can understand the people he's talking with. Where is Paul when this is happening, when this conversation is happening? Where is he? You have your Bible, right? Where is he? What? Synagogue. Thank you. These are not rhetorical questions. He's in the synagogue which is where the Jews go to worship, right? So Paul understands that for the people he's talking with, the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, are their ultimate reality. What they have centered their lives around. There is nothing more important than these scriptures. This tells their stories, what God has been doing on their behalf since the very beginning. What God will one day do when the Messiah comes. So what is Paul doing? Paul goes right to their ultimate reality. Right to what matters most to them. We're going to see next week when Paul is in Athens, a Greek city, that he doesn't do that. He doesn't go to the Hebrew scriptures with the people from Athens. But these are Jews in the synagogue. And so Paul sets side by side the death and resurrection of Jesus with their ultimate reality, with the things that matter most to them. And then he shows how the gospel of Jesus answers and meets everything that bubbles up from that ultimate reality. So think about how this works for us. It starts with whether you and I, like Paul, live within a gospel reality. Is is the gospel, is the death and resurrection of Jesus, is it authentic to you? Here's what I mean. Do you use normal language to talk about Jesus? Or do you switch into that weird churchy mode? Do you switch into that weird churchy, strange language that nobody really can understand mode? Here's where it plays out in our church a lot. These are the stories that I hear from our community group leaders. Community group leaders, you tell me if I'm right or wrong here. Everybody gets together for their community group. Let's say it's like on a Wednesday night. They're meeting in somebody's home. And you haven't seen each other all week long. So it's like a party atmosphere. How are you doing? How was your week? How's that nasty coworker? How's... How's your, how's your parents, you know, whatever, all that shared life stuff. It's just fun. It's casual. It's authentic. It's normal. And then community group leader goes, okay, it's time for us to open the Bible. And everybody gets real weird. (laughs) So one minute, it's good to see how it's so nice, you know, and then it's like, open your Bible. Question one. Well, according to my study notes, the answer is, <laughs> you know I'm not lying. This is, see, Paul doesn't do that. For Paul, the death and the resurrection of Jesus is his experience, is his reality. So his language about it, the way he interacts with it, is authentic to him. He doesn't switch into weird churchy person mode. 
It just bought, this is, this is who, this is my experience. I know you all know what I'm talking about. Some of you do it. Start using these weird christian terms. I was really blessed this week by my encounter with, you know, like, who talks like that? You don't talk like that unless you're like talking about the Bible. Here's the other thing that Paul does, though. He demonstrates an authentic understanding of the gospel in his life, but then he sets it side by side with the thing that matters most to the people he's talking with, the Hebrew scriptures. Can we do that? I have a friend who um, works for a, a Christian organization that uh, works with high school students. And he's in this like long battle because my friend um, is, is trying to tell his supervisors that, you know, the, the students that I work with, they're not, um, they're not real interested in sin. Sin is not their ultimate question like maybe it was a generation ago, right? So like a generation ago in my friend's organization, what they would do is they come to these high school students and they'd, they'd draw this diagram. There's like, you know, this, and then there's a cliff, and then it goes back up, and then it, and Jesus or God is over here, and you're over here. How are you possibly going to make it over? Oh, look, the cross fits perfectly, right? And it's just... Uh, And apparently a generation or two ago, that was, those are people's questions. How do I get to God? There, I'm aware that there is a gulf. And my friend who knows high school students better than anybody I know, he said, that is not kids' question. He says, the kids that I, that I work with, they, they don't even think that God would care about them. They don't even think that God will care to put a bridge between us and him. They have, their questions are about worth. Does anybody actually care about me? Does my life matter to anyone? Are we able to demonstrate a real, genuine knowledge of what matters most to the people we're talking with, to our neighbors, to our friends, to our family members? Because I guarantee, I guarantee if you did what Paul did with some of your friends, well, let me talk to you about the Old Testament scriptures. Well, we love the Old Testament scriptures in our church. Would you agree? Deeply important to us. But man, you start like going to... Isaiah right away with somebody? You know, who, what? I'm, uh, a, a good friend of my wife's and mine, uh, he and his family now live in, in the Middle East. Uh, but we lived in the same town a few years ago. And, um, and this friend of mine, just he's interested in, in, in folks from the Middle East, folks of uh, Arab descent, um, uh, Muslim folks. Just always been interested in that. And so... Uh, my friend would, would frequent all of the, like, uh, the pita restaurants in town uh, to get his falafel and his hummus and his baba ganoush fix and his hookah pipe fix. Some of you know what a hookah pipe is, don't you? What's a hookah? I don't know. 
and got to the point where he would, he would go to this one restaurant so regularly that the owner of it, a, a gentleman who was twice his age uh, for sure, started uh, like inviting him to come over later. Hey, why don't you come by around nine when I'm closing up tonight? And my friend would come by and they would drink Arabic coffee together, maybe smoke the hookah pipe together. And over time, my friend had this beautiful opportunity to learn what mattered most to this older immigrant man, this Palestinian man. You know what it was? Are my culture, are my traditions, are my values going to be carried on by my two sons who've grown up mostly in America? who are behaving in ways that are totally strange and foreign to me. And so my friend had this beautiful opportunity over and over again to hear this, to be privileged to hear this man's story. And then every now and again to set side by side this man's ultimate concerns, what mattered most to him with the gospel of Jesus. My dad... um, my parents lived in, in um, East Tennessee for a while. Anybody ever been to East Tennessee? Like, I mean, you know. East Tennessee is beautiful. I love it. But it's different. It's the Appalachian Mountains. And, uh, and I don't know how, but somehow my dad got hooked up with this, this older guy who was blind, lived in a single wide trailer, up this like dirt gravel road in the mountains, almost impossible to get to. Somehow my dad learned about this guy. And so, and this is my dad, right, Pastor Michael, you know, like he just, okay, I'm going to go visit him. And so he just started visiting this guy, old, no offense, redneck, definitely racist, ornery man living in this stinking trailer. And they just hang out. And my dad learned this guy didn't hardly have anything to eat, so he'd bring him some food. And uh, then he found out that he, he didn't have any way to access his, his checking account. So my dad would bring him down into town every once in a while, and they'd take care of his banking stuff. And over time, my dad had the privilege to hear this man's ultimate concerns. Does anybody remember me? Because my family doesn't show up anymore. My friends are all dead. Does anybody still care about me? Does my life have any value, any worth? And over time, my dad got to set side by side. Do I matter? Does my life have any worth, any value with the gospel of Jesus? Are we living this way? For some of us, it's fairly easy because a lot, of, uh, a lot of the folks we interact with who maybe are not followers of Jesus, they're, they're like you, right? So you can pretty easily get in their head because their concerns about life in the world are your concerns, right? So it's easier to set side by side. But, but what if your coworker is totally different than you? What if your neighbor is totally different than you? Great. The gospel of Jesus says that you and I get to get to know people. 
we get to be curious. We get to wonder what makes him tick. What does she lie awake at night thinking about? What are her biggest hopes and dreams? The gospel says you and I get to get to know people. We get to care. We get to be curious. We get to be interested. So that a day comes when we have this opportunity, and I guarantee it's going to surprise you when it shows up, to sit side by side. I know this is what matters most to you in life. I've heard your story. I've walked with you. I know this is what you care about more than anything else. Can I set that right next to the gospel of Jesus? Can I show you how the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus meets your deepest concerns about this life? What are we setting side by side with the gospel? What is the thing? What is the story? What is the insight that you get to set side by side with the gospel of Jesus? Let's go to our next question. What kind of gospel trouble are we making? Some of you are already like, all right. Troublemakers out there, rabble rousers. Look at verse 6 and 7. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now Come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decree, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. So, so how does this trouble manifest itself? Well, the, these Jewish religious leaders, they appeal to Caesar and they say, look, these folks are claiming that there's another king, somebody named Jesus. But we only have one king. It's Caesar. Very reminiscent of what happens at Jesus' trial before Pilate. Same exact thing happens. Jewish leaders come before Pilate and says, this person is claiming to be a king. We all know that there is no king but Caesar. Interesting when you think about the fact that these are Jewish leaders who ought never to have said such a thing. Who would have claimed only one king, God. Here's what happens, though. Here's what happens, though, with religious power. When it's threatened, when religious power is threatened, you're going to look for it somewhere else. This is, in many ways, the story of American Christianity. When our religious power is threatened, we're going to grasp that political power. This is why the difference between gospel and religion, this is one of the reasons, is so important. That's a whole other sermon. So I'm not, let me try not to get started down that path. Why, though, do these folks feel threatened? Why do these religious leaders feel threatened? Because I'm not sure how many people in our day feel threatened by us. How many people, how many people in power do you know who are laying awake at night going, those Christians, those Christians, what are we going to do? They're, they're upsetting the apple cart. For many of us, we've grown up in an environment that says Christianity is about this private, personal relationship with Jesus. 
a private piety that ultimately is supposed to make us better people, better citizens. If this was the case in our story, nobody would give a rip that people were coming to know Jesus. Great! You found something that's going to make you a better person? Awesome! Something that's going to make you a better citizen? Great! We need, we need more good citizens. But see, that's not what's happening. It's not that there's this nice little revival where people are recommitting their lives to Jesus and then going on and living as if nothing ever happened. These early Christians understood the very public ramifications of the gospel. How do we know this? Well, in our text this morning, we see that this church already is demonstrating socioeconomic diversity. There are rich people and there are poor people doing life together, gathering together, hearing one another's stories. This is gospel trouble because the leaders have a way that things work. You're born into this class, you're happy with it. You're born into this class, put up with it. We have a way that our economy works. You're telling me that the gospel has economic implications? Ooh, that's gospel trouble. There's ethnic diversity in this early church. There's Jews and there's Greeks worshiping together. This is gospel trouble. No, we've got, we've got a way that our society works. We've got Roman citizens, men of a certain uh, wealth category that have certain rights. And then if you fall into this category, you have fewer. Look, we've got a way that things work. If you're a slave, you're over here. If you're a woman, you're here. Look, we've got a way. We're happy with how things are. What are you doing bringing everybody together? What are you doing sharing food together, meals together, spending time in each other's? That is gospel trouble. There's gender equality in the early church. There are women and men who are both, both have access to the living God. Uh-uh, that's not how it works. the early church was just kind of huddled up in their small groups, praying together, how can we be better, you know, Christians in our hearts? Nobody would care. But it's because they understood the very public ramifications of the gospel that they got in trouble. So let me ask you, what kind of gospel trouble have you stirred up lately? What kind of gospel trouble have we, have you stirred up lately? Teachers, teachers, when you fight for your students despite inept administrations and principals who don't give a rip about what's going on in your classroom, that's stirring up gospel trouble. Would you agree? Parents, Parents, when you raise children who will not bow to the idol of materialism, would you agree? Stirring up gospel trouble. Children who are going to grow up and be able to say, no, I realize that that way of life is empty, is dead. I will not pursue it. Parents, you're raising children who are going to stir up gospel trouble. 
students, your decision to spend time with other students who come from radically different places than you do, who believe differently, sexual orientation is different than yours, your decision to be in their lives, to hear their stories, to advocate on their behalf, to show how you can demonstrate the gospel next to, that is going to stir up gospel trouble. Getting out of your little Christian chapter on campus Expanding your relational network, your network of friends beyond just Christians on campus and spending significant time with people who come from a totally different place than you do. What kind of gospel trouble are you stirring up? If we were in Thessalonica, would the authorities be dragging us before the court? Seriously, would they? Or would they be like, oh man, now that's our kind of Christian. They're nice. They go with the flow. They don't make trouble. Just asking. Here's the thing, though, and you need to listen to this because some of you, the rabble rousers in our church, you need to hear this. Paul and his companions do not pursue trouble. Trouble finds them. They do not pursue trouble. Trouble finds them. They're convinced that simply speaking of and demonstrating the coming kingdom of God is enough. Trouble will find them. And then what's their response? What's their response? Let's fight. Let's go. What's their response? We're going to suffer for this. We're going to suffer for this. The kingdom of God is going to be advanced by people who are willing to suffer for the cause of Jesus. Not people who make a lot of noise, not people who shout and holler really loud, but by people whose lives and words demonstrate the coming kingdom of God to the point where we're willing to suffer for it. Jesus says, look, the kingdom, the kingdom, it's going to surprise you. You know what it's like, he says? It's like a mustard seed. It's like the tiniest seed that there is, but that over time grows into this tree that holds many birds of the air. Jesus says, look, the the kingdom of God is not going to be what you expect. It's not going to be loud and noisy. It's not going to be where you expect it to show up. It's like yeast. It's like a tiny little bit of yeast that over time works its way through all of the dough and impacts all of its surprising. So rabble-rousers, you hearing me? Trouble will find you, and then we will suffer willingly for it. How are we doing on time? All right, we're going to try to get all four questions in. Uh, We'll be quick on this one. Whose responsibility is gospel acceptance? It's an interesting case study here. In verse 4, we see that some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. But we know that they get kicked out of Thessalonica pretty quickly. But then we jump ahead to verse 11. Now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians. This is like Luke going, like giving a little jab. <laughs> they were more noble. I thought that was kind of funny. 
For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Um, we, we've said this so many times, but I need to say it again. Whose responsibility is it? Whose responsibility is gospel acceptance? Whose responsibility is it for someone to say, yes, I want to pursue the way of Jesus. Yes, I want to submit my life to Jesus. Yes, I accept the death and resurrection of Jesus. Whose responsibility is that, church? Whose responsibility is that? Holy Spirit? You can say, Jesus, God, Holy Spirit. Any three of those would be appropriate. This is the work of God. Whose responsibility is it? It's it's God's. Can I give you a few examples here? Here's, Here's why this is important, even though we've talked about it. Because if you don't understand, if I don't understand that this is God's work, if we don't understand that only God causes somebody to accept the gospel, then you and I are acting out of guilt. You and I are acting out of duty. You and I are giving ourselves way more credit than we deserve. And guess what? Guess what? Then that's the kind of gospel we spread. If you and I are acting out of guilt, oh, this is my responsibility. Oh, this is something I have to do. Oh, I got it wrong. Why won't that? If that's our motive, then that's the kind of gospel that we're demonstrating. One of guilt. One of duty. One that says, you've got to do this yourself. You've got to pull yourself up. If you and I can understand that this is the work of God, then this is a grace-filled message. So Jesus, uh, in the 10th chapter of Luke, he sends out some of his disciples, and he says this to them. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. If not, it will return to you. Verse 8. When you enter a town and you are welcomed, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick who are here and tell them the kingdom of God is near you. But... When you enter a town and are not welcome, go into its street and say, even the dust of your town that sticks to our feet, we wipe wipe off against you. What does Jesus say? Look, you're going to go some places, and they're going to be so happy to hear the gospel. You're going to go into other places, and they're not going to want anything to do with you. Okay. Okay. So if you walk into a house and they welcome you, stay. If they don't, go. If you come to a town and they welcome you, stay. If not, then, you know... Wipe the dust off. Find another town. Matthew chapter 13. Jesus tells a very well-known parable. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched. They withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. He who has ears, let him hear. Jesus said, look, the gospel is going to be sown some places and hard, shallow, weedy soil. And then it's going to be sown in other places, and amazing life is going to happen. Okay. 
That's how it is. I know some of you are like, no, 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 no. You, you, you fertilize the soil. You, you till the soil. No, 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 no. We've seen in Acts how Lydia's heart is opened by God. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, Paul is responding to an early church that has divided up based on personality, the people who liked Apollos and the people who liked Paul. And this is what he says. After all, what is Apollos and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but who made it grow? But who made it grow? Hang on. This has to be true for us, church. We have to be convinced that this is God's work. We get to proclaim, we get to embody, we get to show the gospel. But the gospel will be accepted because God has opened someone's heart. Some of you feel way too much pressure. Some of you, anytime sharing the gospel comes up, sharing your faith, however you want to talk, whenever that topic comes up, oh, you get this thing inside of you, this pit in your stomach, your palms start sweating. You have flashback to some really bad Christian movie that you saw in youth group and made you feel really guilty. The gospel we believe is the gospel we will share. The gospel that has been true for us is the gospel that other people will observe in us. Last question. When will we get the gospel right? Okay, back to our passage, Acts chapter 17. As soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, and then it goes on, and then jump to verse 15. The men who escorted, or excuse me, verse uh, 14. The brothers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. The men who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. When will we get the gospel right? Paul has now been forced to leave Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea before he'd planned to leave. He's three for three. He's gotten kicked out of three different cities. He's been forced to leave three different infant churches. Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. And now he's in Athens. He's had to leave before he wanted to three different times. In 1 Thessalonians, the book, the letter that Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica, maybe just a few weeks after he'd been forced to leave, Paul says, look, I know, I know that you are infant in your faith. He says, I know that some of you came to Christ from a very pagan background. You didn't grow up in a Jewish context where you understood the story of the scriptures and what God has been doing throughout human history. Paul is, he has angst 
about this. Because I, I know, I know I had to leave way too soon. Uh, in that same letter, a chapter later, Paul says, I tried to come back. He said, I tried to come back and visit you, but I, I couldn't. I was kept, and we don't know why. I was kept from coming back. He had this desire to come back and strengthen the church, to continue teaching, to continue explaining. This is what Jesus has done for you. This is what it means to live within this new reality, this kingdom of God. He's hurting. He's angsty. He doesn't want to have left all ready. This is an interesting pattern throughout Christian history. This kind of thing happens fairly regularly. In 1948, the Communist Party came to power in China and expelled all of the foreign Western missionaries. If you do any reading from this time, it's really interesting to read the correspondence of some of these Western missionaries, people from America, from England. And they're just devastated. What is going to happen to the church now that we're gone? How will the church survive? How will the church grow now that the missionaries are gone? Anybody know what's happening in China these days? One of the biggest churches in the world. More Christians in China than almost anywhere else in the world. Huh. I grew up, some of you know, I grew up in Venezuela. My dad was a, a, a pilot, a missionary pilot. And uh, just a couple of years ago, the new government in Venezuela uh, expelled almost all of the Western foreign missionaries, just like happened in China many years and happened all around the world at different times. And so I saw all these emails going back and forth from friends of mine, people I'd grown up with who still lived in Venezuela, who lived throughout the whole country, who had been involved in Bible translation, sharing the gospel, building up churches. And it was that same language. Oh, what's going to happen to the church now? How will they make it? We... We haven't gotten the gospel right yet. There's still so far to go. There's still so much we need to teach them. They still don't know. A part of this is totally rational, right? And those, those missionary friends of mine, they just, they love those people. They love the people they were working with. These were their friends. Of course they didn't want to leave. Same with those missionaries in China. But there's a flip side of this. You and I give ourselves way too much credit. We think that getting that gospel right is up to us. We think that we have this massive responsibility. Man, we got to get, get everything right. We've got to get uh, whatever we think God has called us to do. We better get it just right. Because after all, we know what we're doing. I had this experience very personally as my wife and I tried to decide whether we could leave the church where we served in the suburbs and come and join the mission here at New Community. It was like a year-long, very anxiety-ridden process for me. Because the church I was a part of, this church I loved, is doing amazing things. We, we were in the process of kind of turning in this new direction, of, of taking on a more mission-oriented focus, of, of understanding that our role in that community was much bigger than we'd ever understood. And you know what the thing inside of me said? How, how are they going to keep moving in that direction if you leave? 
How are they going to continue moving in this God-oriented, mission-oriented direction if you leave? How arrogant of me. How prideful. I know that there are some, even in our family here, who have similar questions about our church plant in Bronzeville. Man, we've only existed as a church for like a little over seven years. What business do we have planting a church in Bronzeville? We still have so far to go at Logan Square, so much to learn about the gospel, so much to learn about loving our neighbors. How could we plant a church in Bronzeville? Come on. We're just, we're just never going to get it right, are we? Can we get over that? I mean, this is the story of the disciples and Jesus. Jesus says to them over and over again, I'm going to leave. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to resurrect. I'm going to leave. What was that he said? I didn't totally follow him. What was that? I'm going to leave. The very Son of God, present on earth, leading the mission of God in the world, he's going to leave? In the first chapter of Acts, and you remember this if you've been around for a while, Jesus comes to his disciples and says, Okay, I've told you it's coming. Now it's going to happen. I'm going. I'm leaving. But don't you dare do anything until I pour out the Holy Spirit into your lives. Is there any way for you and I to understand the growth of the early church aside from the Holy Spirit? These disciples are not all that smart. Would you agree? They are pretty ethnocentric. They're pretty shallow. They have some very idealistic ideas of what the kingdom means, and it's mostly to their own benefit. They are most interested in power and control and being in charge. Is there any way for you and I to understand the growth of this church aside from Jesus saying, don't you dare do anything until the Holy Spirit is poured out into your lives? And then what happens? Everything changes. These people who had primarily existed for their own good and their own benefit all of a sudden take on an entirely new character. Because the very presence of the living God has resided in them. Well, on Easter Sunday, again, God willing, on Easter Sunday, we're going to have a commissioning service for all of the folks who are going to be going to Bronzeville. And I, I'm guessing that in that moment, some of you are going to be like, oh, you're leaving? You're, you're going? Wait, but, but, but you're one of the leaders. Wait, wait, wait. But you do like tech teams. But, but you're like our setup. How are we going to continue on? This has been the story of the church from the beginning. 
And so, and so, so let me just run through these four questions real quick, and then I'm going to pray, and we're going to be done. What can we set side by side with the gospel? What kind of gospel trouble are we making? Whose responsibility is gospel acceptance? When will we get the gospel right? Andy, you want to come on up? The only way you and I can come with these questions, the only way that you and I can come with these questions and leave today with a sense of excitement, a sense of empowerment, a sense of God being on mission, and we getting to participate with that, is if we understand that the Holy Spirit of the living God is here now. The only way for you and I to get over our insecurities and our inhibitions, the only way for some of us to move beyond, ah, that guilt, I have to do this, I have to get this right, Holy Spirit of the living God, here, now, in you, leading this church. Amen? The only way for some of us today to to, to move from, uh, I'm living for myself, to, I'm genuinely curious about my neighbor. I really, really want to know what makes my roommate tick. I want to be able to set side by side what you're ultimately concerned with in the very gospel of Jesus. The only way for some of us is to understand that the Holy Spirit of God lives in you now. The only way for some of us to begin stirring up some gospel trouble is for us to realize that God has been on a mission for a long time. And this mission is much bigger than just getting your life fixed. It's much bigger than just you feeling better about yourself. The mission of God is huge. And you and I are equipped by the Holy Spirit participate in this to allow trouble to find us as people who understand the public ramifications of our faith is the Holy Spirit are you aware of the Holy Spirit's present and power in you (laughs) I'm not going to pray that the Holy Spirit comes Holy Spirit's here amen that's done. That's taken care of. You said yes to Jesus. You said yes to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the presence of God is here, is in you, is empowering you, is leading you. Now, do you recognize it? Do you submit to it? Do you pay attention to it? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are people who need you. God, we are people who deeply, deeply need the very presence of the living God. There are too many examples around us of this shallow Christianity. There's too many examples of of people who talk about Jesus but live for themselves. continue bowing your heads. I want you to listen to this short little article I read this week. A woman in Bronzeville writes, why haven't these churches adopted the neighborhood in school in their immediate radius? 
during all these years of murder and mayhem? Why are their doors closed six days a week? What is this victory that their choir sings about? Why aren't they performing miracles in Jesus' name? Why are the Brinks armored trucks picking up bags of money on Sunday morning? Someone should drag all of these fake reverends into federal court and charge them with fraud and embezzlement on behalf of Jesus. I've had it with all of them. How about we hold press conferences against them, picket their counterfeit churches and organizations, and demand that they provide the community with a stimulus package out of their stash of tithes, federal, state, and city funds. Oh, I forgot. We're waiting on Jesus to come down and do the work of grown men. We're waiting on Jesus because he's the only one who saves. We're waiting on the president to give us money, and we're waiting on Mayor Daly to tell us what to do. And as long as we pray and wait, we're free from responsibility. Jesus, we do not want to be that kind of church with that kind of reputation. Lord God, we want to be a church that believes that you are present in our city, that you are active in our city, that you are active in our lives. We want to be a church that clearly exists for the benefit of others and for our neighbors. We want to be a church that over and over again sacrifices out of our abundance or out of our poverty for the good of others. And so let this be a, an indictment against us. Let this be a call for repentance. Let this be a reminder that our mission is huge and that the world is watching. The world is waiting for Christians and for a church to accept the call of Jesus, to accept the mission of God in our lives. So Holy Spirit of the living God, make us aware that you're already here, that you're already active, that you're already moving, that you've already given us everything that we need, everything that we need for the mission that you've called us to. Let us set aside distractions. Let us set aside selfishness. Holy Spirit, do this work in our lives. We pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Let's pray. Let's pray. Child of God, children of God, church of God, you have been given everything that you need for this life. You lack nothing. You who have been empowered by the Holy Spirit of God, you who have been chosen by your Father God, you who have been hidden in Christ, have been given everything that you need for this life. Live out of that this week. Live out of that this week. Seekers of God, searchers for God, know that God is after you. God is after you. God knows you, loves you, longs to be known by you. Be encouraged this week as you pursue, as you seek after this God. And so, Holy Spirit of the living God, we need you. We thank you for being with us and in us. Would you this week make us aware of your presence in us and make us aware of where you are at work all around us. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. See you next week.